We already prayed one form of this. I will uh, read for us Matthew 6, 9 through 13 as we continue working our way through the Lord's Prayer. So for Matthew 6, 9 through 13, this is the Word of God. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, that is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. We're already at week five of our our series looking at this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. I know some of you are thinking, how in the world are we only this far after five weeks? Uh, But I think uh, this is a really valuable exercise because it trains us and it equips us and guides us in how we think about God and how we think about prayer and how we think about ourselves. After five weeks, I think the conclusion that we can walk away with is that Jesus teaches us to pray, at least so far, in a way that is very God-centered. And I think this makes a lot of sense because our understanding of God is going to shape our understanding of prayer. So let's think about some misconceptions. If God is a genie who just grants wishes, that's going to shape a certain kind of prayer life. Uh, If God is a, a life coach just kind of rooting us on in life, that will shape prayer in a particular way. If, if God is just some kind of um, benevolent grandfatherly figure, that will affect how we pray. On the other hand, you can think of, if I believe God is a taskmaster, if I believe God is a tyrant, if I believe God is a bully, that will also impact the way I understand prayer. And so Jesus wants to situate us, right? No, God is our Father in heaven. He is for us, and he is able to intervene and to work, and to affect change. He delights to hear our needs because he's our Father, and we're going to get there beginning next week. But the wonder of all of this prayer business is that God is God. And that's a big deal, because we need God to be God. He is the magnificent, sovereign creator who's, who's perfect in, in glory and majesty. Have you all been seeing these pictures coming from the James Webb Telescope you guys caught wind of those? I mean, they're incredible. These, these, these full-color photographs that go deeper into space than, than we've ever really seen before. King David proclaimed that the heavens declare the glory of God, and we would say, Dave, you have no idea. You have no idea. What a wonderful creator God who is to be praised and exalted, and yet who also, in this, in this really scandalous, marvelous way, he also stoops down to us and desires to hear our prayers. And so, so far, we have a very God-centered prayer. Tim Keller writes, God-centeredness heals the heart of self-centeredness, which curves us in on ourselves and distorts all of our vision. He goes on to say, our vision is reframed and clarified by the greatness of God. Um, I used this illustration a few weeks ago. Part of our struggle with, with our prayer lives that just become laundry lists is that prayer kind of looks like that sepia-toned Kansas of the Wizard of Oz. And Jesus wants to situate us in the greatness of God, which at least gets a, a little bit closer to a, to a prayer life in technicolor. A prayer life that can be sustained. A prayer life that can generate enough interest for us to do it. 
Jesus takes us on this journey that begins in this expansive, glorious reality of God, that his name is great, that his kingdom is what we need. We long for his will to be done, and he brings that into our day-to-day lives. So again, this morning, we're looking at the third petition. This is the third request that we make in this prayer. The first three have to do with God's glory, his name, kingdom, and will. Next week, we transition to the last three petitions having to do with our good. Provision, forgiveness, protection. Our our, our petition this morning, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I think maybe functions like a hinge. It's still very much related to last week's message about God's kingdom coming, and yet it also meets us on a very personal level because we are people that have wills, and we want those wills to be done. So much of our anger and our bitterness is because our wills are not being done. Our wills come in conflict with the wills of others. So to pray for God's will to be done certainly will have something to do with us and our wills. There are two points that we'll look at this morning as we work through this third petition. Uh, It's first of all a prayer that confronts us. It confronts those of us who have very, uh, very much have wills that we want to see done. It confronts us with God's will, but it's also uh, a prayer that conforms us. It shapes us, it molds us to be more and more like uh, the people that God has created us to be. So two points, it's a prayer that confronts and it's a prayer that conforms. Now there are typically two ways that we ordinarily speak of God's will, but right from the start, let me get rid of a third unbiblical way, I think it's very unbiblical, that we speak of God's will. This often does come up in the church, I'm I'm sure that most of us have talked in this way, I certainly have talked in this way, and this would be what's called the will of direction. And so if you're taking notes and you write down will of direction, make sure you cross it off and say no. No, we don't want the will of direction. Now, what is the will of direction? It's where we're trying to discern and chase down God's will for our lives. Now, this can look like a lot of very common questions. Again, questions that I I know that I have asked. I'm sure many of you have asked the same kinds of questions. It can be something like, God, just show me which college to pick. God, I'm trying to discern, is this the person that I'm supposed to marry? God, just show me your will as I contemplate whether or not I should take this job and make this career change. God, would you just show me your will? But it's a misunderstanding of what God's will is. It's as if prayer is kind of tapping into the divine plan for our lives. Uh, Prayer is a magic eight ball. Isn't that what a magic eight ball is? God, should I marry this girl? You shake the eight ball and you want the answer. It's a Ouija board. It's reading the tea leaves. Prayer begins to kind of sound pagan, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like Christian prayer at all. The closest we have in the Bible to this idea is in the Old Testament, where the high priest of Israel is given the Urim and the Thummim, which was this provision that God gives to the nation of Israel, whereby they could ask God and and discern the will for the nation. So it would be questions like, should we go into battle? Now what's remarkable is how little we see that provision in the Old Testament, or how little Israel ever used that provision. I mean, can you imagine having that provision? Wouldn't you want to use it all the time? But we barely see it. But we don't have anything like an Urim or a Thummim. I always feel like such a disappointment when I tell someone as their pastor, I have no idea what you should do. I don't have the foggiest what you're supposed to do. So we're relying on providence, and and, and you don't look at providence in the future, you read it backwards. I have no idea what God's up to right now. It's only in retrospect that I can start to see God's hand working in my life. And so what do we do? We rely on opening and, and closing doors. We have to be sensitive to 
our abilities, our gifts, our opportunities, our, our interests. Pro and con lists are really helpful. But in the end, I don't think we can chase down God's will, and I don't think the Bible suggests that we're supposed to. So no will of direction. Let's get that off the table. So what's left? The two biblical ideas of will uh, are, are, are God's decretive will and God's prescriptive will. God's decretive will, in other words, he's working everything out according to his plan, and God's prescriptive will, what we are to do. And that's how we're going to break down this prayer. And so our first point is that this is a prayer that confronts us, with, and so we're going to look at God's prescriptive will. Uh, now that's something we need to discern, what we're supposed to do. What is the prescriptive will of God, sometimes also called God's will of desire? Well, this is what God commands of us. This is what God wants from us. Hear that word prescription, right? It's like a physical therapist prescribing exercises. So God prescribes his moral will to his creatures, to, his, to human beings. He tells us what we are to do. So use the, the job illustration. I don't know if I'm supposed to take this job. Now, this is a silly example, but it is not God's will for you to sell drugs as a side hustle. Of course not. It's silly, right? Is it God's will for me to take a job that pays a little more, but I'll miss worship on Sundays? Well, it's probably not a good idea. Seems like we're skirting past God's will for our lives in the fourth commandment. God says, here's a day that I'm going to restructure your life because you are my people. If we blow past that and, and wonder, are we listening to God's will? Well, we're not listening, are we? And so God's prescriptive will is what we are to do, how we are to live. And, and again, this is the main idea of this petition in the Lord's Prayer. We pray for God's will to be done on earth where it's not really done as it is in heaven. And so in what way is earth different than heaven? Well, God is Lord of both. God is sovereign over both. God rules over all. The difference is that in heaven, every command is carried out perfectly with joyful obedience. I don't think I need to prove that, but here's Psalm 103, verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Now that psalm reads differently among us on earth, doesn't it? We might retranslate it, bless the Lord, you people, you weak ones who don't always do his word and who disobey so often the voice of his word. And that's why this petition confronts us. It confronts us in our failure to do the will of God, our, our, our failure to keep God's law, his prescription for the good life. The reformer Martin Luther goes really heavy on this petition as he expounds it uh, because he reads it as basically a prayer of judgment against ourselves. It humbles us because in seeking God's will to be done, we have to, at the same time, see our own failure in doing that will. Your will be done is certainly related to, to praying for God's kingdom to come. That's what we looked at all last week, right? The world is weary. The world is grief-filled. The world is wicked. But the honest prayer and the Christian prayer is that I'm not just wearied, I'm wearying. Ask those who are closest to me. I'm wearying. My own heart has a remarkable capacity for wickedness. And so for Luther to pray your will be done is to judge and condemn ourselves by our own words. It's to confess we are disobedient to this will. We do not do this will. 
Luther says if we were in that state where we were able to do the will of God, then this petition wouldn't be given to us at all. And therefore, he concludes, this thing is a terrible thing to read when we say your will be done. Now, does he go too far? I think so, he does. I don't think this petition is a terrible thing to hear. I think if you're in Christ, it's a healing thing to hear. Because it's a prayer that doesn't just say, God, we long for your will to be done out there. We first say, God, start with me. Start with me. I want to be a person who's shaped by your will. Your will be done is a confession of our failure to do God's will, but it's also this confession that, God, I also understand that that your will is the good life. Your will is that which endures when everything else around me is passing away. Hear these words of 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride in possessions, that's not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so we pray, God, I am so consumed with the desires of the flesh and and the eyes and pride in possessions. but, But all of that I know is passing away. And so, Lord, would your will be done in my life, reorienting, realigning my heart towards you, toward that which abides forever. Now, what does that realigning work look like? Um, go to a place like Romans 12, 1 through 2. I think it's a wonderful passage to tie to this petition, your will be done. Paul says this in Romans 12, 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's a wonderful picture of our lives as those who belong to God. Every day we're presenting ourselves before God. We are the offerings, right? Your will be done. We are the offerings. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds in the word of God, right? Listening to God, that is the way that we are transformed. So it's interesting, right? He says, when you discern the will of God, but discerning the will of God is not, God, let your will be be known to me. No, discerning means something more like hearing God's word in a cacophony of other voices that allure us with rival versions of the good life. That's where we need to discern God's word. A key diagnostic question for all of us to regularly turn back to is what are the voices shaping my life? What are the voices shaping our wills? Because this prayer, your will be done, that's a prayer for God to be the loudest. So let me turn this back to you. What are the voices that are shaping you? This could be a voice of shame. It could be a voice of shame telling you that you're, you're not enough, you'll never be enough. How could anyone, let alone God, how could, or how could God, let alone anyone, love you? Um, you are defined by, by your worst mistake. That's who you are. That's a loud voice. You always hear that voice, and so you need the louder voice of the Father, don't you, saying, you kidding me? You're my beloved. You need the voice of your elder brother, Jesus, being so much louder, where, where, where he says, all that shame, I took every ounce of it. It's mine. It's mine. Let my voice be louder. 
could be the voice of our culture that stresses this kind of expressive individualism. Who you are is found the deeper you go inside of you. It's who you are in your heart. And so pursue whichever desires and identities that, that you feel are, are mostly true. And the voice of God says, I bought you uh, at the price of, of, of my own blood. I bought you. You belong to me because I love you this much. It's the voice of coworkers where they, they live for material gain, and, and that begins to look good, doesn't it? Or, or they're trying to do everything they can to, to climb the corporate ladder, and you hear those voices, and they are so appealing to you, but you need to hear the louder voice of God. You belong to me. Could be a voice of anger facilitated by social media and cable news that, that builds up self-righteous calluses on our souls. And those neighbors that Christ has called us to love, they become the other, and they become enemies. And so the key question, right, whatever the voices are, what voices are loudest in your life? And then here's the other question, are those voices making you more like Jesus or less like Jesus? And more like Jesus, you can think, are they making you more loving, patient, kind, gentle, peaceable? Do you have more self-control? Because if they're making you less like Jesus and you don't really care, then maybe this prayer is terrifying. Or maybe it just doesn't mean anything because you don't want that. But no, it doesn't have to be terrifying. It's not supposed to be. It's a prayer that confronts us to drive us to repent. It's a prayer that confronts us to drive us to the gospel of the Son. Let me change metaphors on you. That was very audible, right? Listening to the voice of God. Well, uh, I've given this many times that you, you know... One of my desert island books and, and one of my favorite voices I listen to outside of scripture is the pastor John Newton. I talk about him every, every couple months or so. 18th century pastor. He wrote a lot of great hymns and he wrote even better letters. And in one of the counsels he's always giving to his parishioners, which is almost this like concretive way of saying, because you've received this, right? Just go pray and read your Bible. And you say, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like to just go pray and read my Bible. And so he helps you because he's a pastor. And he says, well, what you're doing is you're looking for Jesus. And you're looking to Jesus in the glass of his word. And that is everything. That is the duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness. And so what does God want my life to look like? Would you, would you go look to him? Would you look to the son? Would you look to his compassion and gentleness and righteousness? Would you look to his atoning sacrifice and the power of his resurrection? And so your life is in constant looking back and looking to Jesus. Let me give you an illustration of this. My kids love the beach. Uh, they love the beach in what's an unreasonable way. That's how much they love the beach. I like the beach because it's free, and Dad likes things that are free. Now, here's what happens, right? So, and if, and if you don't have this experience, I'll explain to your parent. You set up a little camp at the beach, right, uh, with your chairs and your, and your blankets and everything. And then you tell the kids, go out into the water, and wonderfully, they're all of the age where they can have a little bit more independence. And so you send them off, and you say, now, just stay right in front of us. And, and parents, what happens? Do they stay right in front of you? Oh, no. No, they drift, right? And they drift and they drift and they drift. And then, and then you say, I don't think they've looked back at me for what's like over five minutes. And so you put your book down and you get up a little disgruntled and you run down there and you start shouting like, what? we're down here. You need to come back down here. And they come back. And eventually what happens is it clicks with one of them. And so what you see is they're out in the water and their heads are constantly turning looking back to you. Isn't that a picture of the Christian life? 
We all know what it's like to go out and then we drift and we drift and we drift. And, and if you're a Christian here, you also know what it's like. And Jesus is not disgruntled. He's the good shepherd who comes up and he drags us back. But just as we experience our kids and their heads on a swivel, your will be done is having our heads on a swivel, isn't it? Is that we go out and yet we're constantly looking back to Jesus. We're constantly listening to his voice. His voice is the louder voice in our lives. And so we pray your will be done. God, keep my head on a swivel looking back to you. All right, so this is a prayer that's going to confront us because we are really good at pursuing our own wills. But secondly, this is a prayer that conforms us. So again, the first point had to do with the prescriptive will of God, God's prescription for our lives. This prayer has to do with the decretive will of God. And that that word decretive, it's not a word we use very often, but it has to do with God's decrees. That's a hard concept to grasp, the the idea of God's decrees. Just go with the idea of everything that happens is according to his will. Here's what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says uh, in, in, in question and answer seven. What are the decrees of God? The answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. All right, so what does that mean? I have no idea. But let's try to break it down a little bit more, right? Let's try to break it down some more. So the decrees of God, it's the, it's the purpose of God outside of time, right? Eternal purposes, According to the counsel of his will. This means that his purposes are not conditioned by things outside of himself, but from his own counsel. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Whereby, for his own glory, that makes sense, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. All things he is working according to his will. Ephesians 1, uh, which we opened on the call to worship uh, in our service this morning. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The the decretive will of God. Everything done according to the purpose of his will. And so the will of the Lord is everything that comes to pass. Nothing happens outside the will of God. It was God's will that you would be here this morning. Do you know how I know that? Because you're here this morning. That kind of idea. But it's a good question, though, when we ask, so what does it mean to pray your will be done when God's will will be done? Well, I think it's a prayer that needs to conform us. It needs to mold us. And, and it does this in two ways. It's a prayer of submission and a prayer of trust. It's a prayer of submission in that it, it confesses not just that we fail to do God's commands, which we've established, but also how we struggle to live contentedly and with gratitude in God's purposes for our lives. I mean, this is such a countercultural prayer. And when anything's countercultural, it also means it's counter me. It's counter us. Your will be done is a prayer of self denial in a culture where maybe that is the most heinous sin there is self denial. Our cultural philosophies and psychologies are all about getting what our hearts desire. This is true everywhere. Our secular priests of our day saying, pursue the desires of your heart, whatever they may be. It's, it's the TV preacher who says God's chief purpose and plan is for you to be happy, so join me as we, as we go on that adventure together. And I'd suggest this narrative has encroached on all of us. Judgment begins in the household of God. Are our churches really filled with less of a spirit of individualism? Are we really filled with less of a spirit of consumerism? 
All of us, to some degree or another, have control issues which open doors to further sins. You could just say at the end of the day, we're selfish and self-seeking. And so to pray your will be done has to upset that idea because God's will is so much bigger than me and you. We all of a sudden are caught up into this project that's bigger than ourselves. And so prayer for Jesus begins here. It begins outside of our wants because my wants are shaped by me. My wants are formed by my own wisdom and experience or lack thereof. And so we pray for God's will to be done because it's a will that is distant from me to some extent. It's a will that is outside of my experience. It's a will that's outside of my wisdom. And so your will be done has to be a prayer wherein we ask God to shape our hearts after his. I love that quote from Will Willimon I included in the front of your bulletins where he says, In praying God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are attempting to school ourselves to want what God wants. We receive not what our hearts desire, but rather we become so enthralled with a vision of what God is doing on earth and in heaven that we forget the story that the world has told us, that we have nothing better to do than to satisfy our desires. Your kingdom come, that's a prayer of hope. We looked at all last week. It's a prayer of hope. Your will be done is a prayer of submission, and also included in that idea is patience. The verb that I would pick, the word that I would pick to convey um, living inside that will is to rest in God's will. We want to be a people who can rest in God's will. So that in this world that is a mess, a mess that we have a hand in, we can set our eyes on the goodness and greatness of our Father. We can entrust ourselves to God's Spirit who's at work shaping us more and more into the image of Christ. It's a prayer that fights our restlessness. When we operate according to our wills and our demand for control, we are restless creatures. To pray your will be done has to also be a prayer of comfort of knowing our lives are in God's hands, not in a, in a determinist way, not that we are chess pieces in a cosmic game of chess, but we are kept and upheld and protected by our Father in heaven. And this won't just require submission, right? It's the other side of this. It requires trust. To trust in the goodness of our Father in heaven. It's so beautiful. A few chapters later, after Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount of how to pray. You have this memorable scene where he's addressing anxiousness and fear and worry. And he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Hear that, hear that language, don't you? The fa- your father. That's who your father is. Not even the hairs of your, or all of the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, because you are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not because nothing happens outside the will of your father, the one you prayed to. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. And so it's not until we grasp God's goodness toward us that we will ever be able to really pray, right, your will be done. It's not until we grasp that God loves us, that the father loves us. That's that's the only way we'll be able to pray and mean your will be done. That the father finds value in us. He values you. And so what's beautiful is how Jesus in Matthew 10, he so memorably and beautifully impresses upon us, this is who your father is towards you. You who are of more value than many sparrows, fear not. 
And here's the remarkable thing, is, is that is this incredible reality that Jesus is teaching on, what's amazing is, is how much further he goes for us to prove the trustworthiness of God. I've mentioned just about every week that every petition of the Lord's Prayer is, is like a, a spotlight that directs us right to the person of Christ. Your will be done is the only petition that Jesus prays himself. Verbatim in the Greek, your will be done. And where does Jesus pray this prayer? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asks the Father to remove the cup of suffering. Jesus prays, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And of course the cup was not removed and Jesus drank the cup down to the dregs. How can I trust God's will for me? We behold Jesus in his word in a garden, bearing the weight of our sin, entering into our suffering so that we might have life. How can I trust in God's will for me? Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Did you ever notice those two words that we miss a lot in that passage, which I just think are absolutely remarkable? It's he who did not spare his own son. How will he not also with him? You ever hear the, the, the father um, didn't, didn't sin, uh, the father did not sacrifice his son, did he? God sacrificed himself in Christ. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus praised his prayer. Jesus praised his will. Uh, is there any other way, right? Is there any other way? And yet he is not rescued because of the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for you. The God who walks with you in valleys of darkness and death is the God revealed in Jesus who took our place, who bore our sin. So, beloved, do not doubt God's commitment to you, his love for you, his goodness towards you. Attend his word wherein he speaks to you, confronting you and conforming you to make you who he is calling you to be. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember that the hands that hold you are nail-scarred hands. Your will be done is not a prayer that sends our minds into some dark labyrinth where we long to discover this future plan that God has for us. No, your will be done is to find rest in a life received from God and in your life empowered by his spirit. No, this is a prayer that should send us to Jesus. The one who taught us to pray this prayer, the one who prayed this prayer from the depths of his soul. It's a prayer that sends us to Jesus where we see God's heart displayed for us in all of its goodness, in all of its greatness, in all of its mercy and love. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, our prayer this morning is that by your spirit you would confront us with this word. God, that we would leave here this morning grasping hold of the questions that we always need to ask as we live our lives in repentance and faith. What are the voices that I'm listening to that are forming my heart? Where am I seeking rest? Where am I seeking contentment?
Where am I seeking peace? Lord, may we find those places in you because you abide forever. Because you endure. Because you are real and everything else is passing away. And so, Lord, we pray your will be done, that you would would shape us as you promised to do. Lord, we throw out the promises that you give us in your word, that that you're going to finish what you started in each and every one of us to whatever wisdom and extent that you work out in your own plan, but it's your plan, which is our security. It's your work, it's your promises, which is our assurance. So, Lord, would you do that work? Would you teach us to pray from our hearts, your will be done? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.